This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Hello, I'm Anita Arnand and thank you for downloading BBC Radio 4's Any Answers, the sister programme to Any Questions. Welcome to the first Any Answers of 2018 and my word, have we got a packed programme for you or what? Uh, This week we've seen A&E overcrowding, a winter flu crisis, a letter to the Prime Minister from doctors warning that some care is not safe. I'd really love to hear from you uh, about the NHS. Do you work for it? Are you using it right now? Are you feeling uh, a crisis? And what should be done about that? 03700 100 444 is the number to call. Um, Of course, a new year, but, you know, we're talking about the same things. Brexit. Uh, He didn't want one. He wanted one. He might not want one. I'm talking about Nigel Farage and his position on a second Brexit vote. What is yours? Is yours shifting too? And and who will it benefit most, leave or remain? We can talk about Donald Trump's decision not to open the US embassy. Is it a terrible shame? Or, as our questioner asked, a blessing in disguise? And um, is criticising Donald Trump the same as insulting the American people? And would a snub from the President of the United States hurt our country? Same number to call. You can also tweet us using the hashtag BBCAQ. And in the light of comments by a French actress about a a witch hunt of men, tell me, what do you think? At what point does flirting become abuse? Um, Are you surprised the question's even asked? That number, final time, 03700 100 444, text 84844, or tweet using the hashtag BBCAQ. It is the NHS, though, that is dominating your thoughts this afternoon. So let's start with you, Catherine Wilson, calling us from Ulverston in Cumbria. Good afternoon, Catherine. Hello. Hi there. So uh, are you a user? Are you a worker? What is your, your experience of the NHS right now? Yeah, at the moment, I work in a GP practice. I'm a practice nurse and assistant manager. And what are you seeing around you? Uh, well, we're, we've come through Christmas and New Year, and I think our patients have been really well looked after. OK. Uh, and so when people are talking about a crisis, are you thinking, actually, we're OK? Well, no, it's not that. I think that the anxieties that are being caused because of misleading statements that are being made by Prime Minister and the Secretary for Health... Um, For example, to say that um, they had been planning for a long time about cancelling appointments. Um, I used to work on a surgical ward and the thought of sending out appointments for procedures for January um, and knowing that there could be a potential to have them um, rescheduled, I think it's an absolute disgrace and a waste of money. And I think um, if that was being planned very well in advance, then they shouldn't have made any appointments for January at all. So you don't think they're, they're calling it as it is. So what do you think the extent of the problem actually is? Oh, no, it's not that I don't think there is a problem. Obviously, there is a problem. Well, no, I'm saying that you do think there is a problem. But what is the scale of the problem? In, in terms of having to cancel the operations I'm talking about, I think people should have been made aware that there was a potential and that was unfair. Okay. Also, the Prime Minister was saying that, uh, for example, GPs have, for the first time over the festive period ever, have provided urgent GP appointments. That's absolutely a lie, because it's been happening for years, okay. out-of-hours appointments, and I just think it increases patients' anxieties. We're meant to support patients, and instead we're scaremongering as well. I'm not saying there isn't a problem, but the staff who work for the NHS should be really, truly, genuinely involved in helping solve the problems. Not Got it. Um, 
got it. Got, got where you're coming from. Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, 03700 100 444 is the number. Uh, if the big problem is social care, surely that is where reform should be. Leave the NHS alone, says Jonathan Morse. Part of NHS... Uh, Part of the problem for the NHS is that it deals with other problems in society which we choose for political reasons to fail at. Drug laws, poverty, knife crime, as well as social care. Another one here. The crisis of the NHS is nurses' low pay, the sale of publicly owned assets and a harmful culture of targets. Uh, that is from someone who calls themselves What's That Sound? Let's go to Sue, who's calling us from Stowmarket in Suffolk. Hello, Sue. Hello. Hello. What's your experience? Well, um, my father, two years ago, was quite independent and enjoying life. He was taken ill and diagnosed with a peptic ulcer, and he was referred for surgery um, for it at the beginning of November. He was seen again by his GP a few weeks later, and they made an urgent referral that day, um, and that was at the beginning of December. So an appointment was made for admission just before Christmas, um, then it was cancelled on account of staffing issues. And then um, he was finally admitted late in January for the surgery. And um, we were told the operation was a success and he was fine. But um, by that time, he was so weak from having to wait for so long that he developed um, an infection himself. It wasn't a hospital uh, um, infection. Mm. It was one he brewed himself because he was so weak. And um, he died at the end of January. I'm sorry. I'm really, really very, very sorry, Sue. Without naming the hospital, because, of course, they're not here to speak on their behalf. Um, well, when this happens, what do you would look back and, and think, could things have been different? Well, there was an investigation. The hospital felt absolutely dreadful about it. Um, I mean, we were in pieces, obviously. And there was an investigation um, you know, the family were interviewed. We had forms to fill in from the GP practice and so on and so forth. But um, what the investigation found was that he died as a result of the delay in surgery. Mm. Um, when people talk about operations being um, postponed, you, you just think of it being an inconvenience or people just being in discomfort for a little longer. But with my dad, it actually killed him. That that was what happened. Because he wasn't able to absorb his food properly because of his condition, mm. um, he wasn't able to recover. He developed an infection, and we lost him. And that was completely unnecessary. So it it wasn't... We didn't kick up a fuss or anything. Mm. It wasn't the hospital's fault. It mm. wasn't our fault. It, it was politics. There weren't enough doctors on that surgical team um, there at that time and other hospitals in the area were in the same position. Can I just ask you, you said something, and you said it twice, I think obviously it chimes with you, you said, you know, the hospital felt awful, they they couldn't have done anything. Did, did you talk to doctors and nurses at the yes, hospital? And did they tell you, what, what did they say exactly? Well, the, the, um, the head of the department... Um, was was extremely nice, obviously, but um, he he said he said rather sadly he made a rather sorry, that's my dog made a rather um, devastating comment from our point of view. Um, he said it's it's the nice people who who don't push, um, in, in, and that left us with the feeling that had we pushed when we were waiting then Dad wouldn't have died. Oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certain he didn't mean you to feel that way, but, you know, I'm, I'm certain he didn't. But we sh people shouldn't have to push. No. We don't know no. what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. You know, lots of people have peptic ulcers. It's not a big deal. 
So we we can't assume that just delaying, and certainly the politicians can't just say, oh, well, you can just wait, because people don't understand the implications, mm. which is the only reason I'm speaking today. I am very, very grateful that you are speaking today, Sue, and I am, I am very, very sorry for your loss. Thank you very much Thank for you. calling us Thank this you. afternoon. Bye. Thank you. Um, Chris Oakes Munger is calling us from Alton in Hampshire. Good afternoon, Chris. Hello, hi. Hi. Um, I have this awful feeling of deja vu because we went through all this in the late 80s and early 90s when we last had a period of prolonged Conservative government. And uh, there is a correlation between crises in the health service and Conservative governments. The problems all disappeared by 2010 and we had great satisfaction. And they're always accompanied by demands that we rethink how we fund it and that we rethink the structure of it. And there's a big corporate lobby wanting us to get lose confidence in the health service and to believe that we can fund it better privately with health insurance. Mm. And uh, I just wish that they would um, tackle the question and that, that the media would, would be frank in tackling the question because unless they can demonstrate that insurance is going to be cheaper then they have no leg to stand on. And it just seems to me that if you're going to put the same amount of money in, you can do it through taxation, and it costs you a certain amount to get the thing up to the standard we want. Any other method of doing it is going to be more expensive because if you do it by insurance, you've got to pay all the overheads of setting up the insurance policies for everybody and all the bureaucracy of claiming and reclaiming the money and the profits of the insurance companies and all the rest of it. So if we move away from a system funded by taxation, it must be more expensive. Mm. So I, I just, you know, I, I think all of this is a, a part of a process of softening us up for pushing again for, you know, creeping privatisation. Right. And, uh, you know, some of it's deliberate and some of it's accidental, I'm sure. If, if, if not an insurance system, what about a, a, a dedicated tax? So uh, it was Nick Bowles who said, look, we'll put a, <clears throat> we'll put a, 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 it will be the NHS penny on, I mean, I don't think he said it in these words, but it will be the NHS penny that goes on, well, on taxation. Well, raised national insurance to fund the health service, nobody complained. There wasn't, there wasn't any complaint. The health service improved. It, it, it wasn't politically difficult to do. Right. Um, so, so the basic problem is the public persists in electing conservative governments. Okay. All right, Chris. A decent health service. Okay. Don't elect a bunch of people who say that you can give tax cuts to their big, their rich friends and big corporations, and it won't have any effect. Got, got you, got you, got you. Thank you very much, Chris. Let's take Annie Shelbourne, who very patiently is waiting to talk to us from Carnforth in Lancashire. Good afternoon, Annie. Good afternoon. Hi. What did you want to say? Um, well, I think, you know, this, the health service is, is in permanent crisis. It's not just a winter crisis. It obviously is happening worse in the winter, um, you know, and we never used to have this in the winter, although, although there was always more pressure in the winter. We never used to have 50,000 operations being cancelled, which has happened over the last couple of years. Um, it's in permanent crisis because of two reasons, really. The first one, which I know about personally, is social care. Uh, there's massive cuts in social care since 2010. How, how do you know about it personally, first of all, um, so we don't lose I'm, that? 
um, because I'm disabled and I've had social care on and off since 1994. And at the moment, my partner's my full-time carer and we just have respite care. But I have had times when, we, you know, when he couldn't look after me when he, after a serious accident, we had carers coming in for three years to me. And at the time, I was getting quite adequate care between 1998 and 2001. You know, I got um, an hour and a half in the morning and an hour at five o'clock. And now people around here and in a lot of the country are getting 15-minute visits where somebody, you know, you can't do anything for someone in 15 minutes. Mm. You could, they have, people are having to choose between having a wash and having something to eat. And then there are 1.2 million people who need social care who aren't getting any care at all. And they're struggling on their own at home. They're often older and frail, but also younger disabled people like me. And they're getting iller. They're sometimes getting malnourished because they can't manage to cook mm. themselves. And they're having falls. And then they're ending up in hospital. And then they can't be discharged. And of course, and that, then, then that puts another burden on the yeah, NHS. on the yeah. NHS. Mm. So this is a huge problem for the NHS. And if the government, you know, stopped cutting... Um, I mean, they've cut 40% the funding to local authorities who provide mm. social care. So that has taken £6 billion out of social care over the last few years. And there was nothing for social care in the budget this year at all. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing is... Very briefly, if you will, Annie. Uh, well, very br- briefly, it's the funding. And, um, you know, the government always say, oh, well, there's, we're spending more in real terms on the NHS. But as Jonathan Dimbleby um, mentioned, you know, there is a 4% that the NHS always used to get 4% for inflation every year. And that's for, to cover, you know, modern, modern drugs, you know, new drugs coming in. Um, people living longer and, you know, more population. And that's been cut to 1% over the last, since 2010. It's been 1% instead of 4%. Okay. So that's a huge mm. squeeze on the NHS. And, you know, you can't oh. go on squeezing it mm. and expecting to provide the same services. And at the same time, if I can just finish, yeah. Yeah. Um, they've cut, the government have slashed... Um, the taxes for the very wealthiest yeah. corporations. Uh, uh, Annie, Annie those, those, yeah, yeah, no, get, no, get that. And that, I'm not cutting you off. It's just it's a point that's been made before, and and I want to get in, as many people on as possible. Um, government spending coming in for quite the kick in this afternoon. If you think uh, it is undue, then get in touch with us. Oh three seven hundred one hundred four four four. The majority of people getting in touch with us though think it's absolutely fair. Uh, this here is a text. If you passed a law stopping all MPs being able to have private medicine within a year, we'd have no problem at all with our hospitals because it affects them as well. Another one here from Stephanie. Would the NHS be in a better state if trusts were not saddled with so much debt? Matthew says, yes, the NHS is obviously in crisis and the first treatment that it needs is more money. We know this from other countries' spend. Uh, Don says, is anyone going to point out that the UK spends much less on healthcare than any other comparable Western nation? And Russell says, a succession of short-sighted, inept governments has continued to decimate the NHS, education, defence. Quality never comes cheap. Take another call. Richard Fry is calling us from Winchester. Good afternoon, Richard. Hi, Anita. Hello. Tell me, uh, you are actually involved with the NHS in what capacity? Uh, well, I used to be a child psychiatrist and I left uh, a few years ago because I couldn't cope with the pressures. And I now work uh, in the independent sector in that. But I'm also a GP locum some of the time in the NHS and I'm a GP appraiser. So I see lots of GPs who are all screaming in pain at the pressures. 
And when, I mean, you say you left because of the pressures. These are the same pressures that they are now facing and screaming about now? or, 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 or? Uh, It was beginning. I, I left in 2005. Mm. I could see the writing on the wall then, and I couldn't practice uh, in the way I felt I needed to, which is largely now focused on non-drug solutions, lifestyle and diet, which is all terribly kind of of the moment. Yeah. OK, so it's it, you say it's been a long time coming. Where mm. would the interventions uh, have made a difference, and, and what should those interventions have been? Well, it, there's no doubt that we are in crisis, and I agree with the lady who before said that you know it's an ongoing crisis. And I want to respond to Claire Fox's point, I think, really, which is that we need a grown-up debate about this. It's not just about money. I mean, money is obviously part of the solution, but we need a multifaceted look at this. So here are some points. Some of these things are actually being trialled already in parts of the country. Some of them aren't. Mm. So we need to clearly limit and manage access to GPs and A&E. We have to manage A&E differently. We have to do GP hub assessment, that's GP sitting in A&E assessing people as they come through the door and directing them into the right places. Mm. And we need to start thinking about charging people for accessing these services and refunding them if certain criteria are fulfilled. Now, the details of that would need to be worked out, but it's quite doable. The other thing we need to do is we need to get generalists back into the system. There are no more general physicians in hospitals. You now go and see specialist after specialist. So people are shunted from department to department takes loads of money, takes loads of time and admin. It's extraordinarily inefficient. And the only generalists left in the system are GPs. And everything gets dumped back on them. Mm. We need, unfortunately, to go back to basics and say, this is now, the NHS is now at a stage where we can't any longer just have it as a demand-led service. It has to be provider-led. It's a basic change in philosophy, and it's a shame, but it needs to be thought about. And that's, mm. that's the charging. Then we've got all the other stuff. We need to restore the morale of the profession. It's bleeding. Everyone's leaving. Mm. If we don't have the manpower, there are no solutions. I, I mean, I've got a feeling you've thought about this for a very long time and you have a long list, but just because... Oh, time... That's it. That's it, OK. Can... The social approach, yeah. which is to encourage healthy living, that's sugar tax, subsidised electric bikes, mm. invest in public transport. Well, we, we, could do, we could devote six programmes to the things that you've raised, but just on, on the first one that you said about charging for GP uh, assessments and appointments, that... Just that, just that idea of, of having a front face charge yeah. would be such an anathema to some people saying that's exactly what that is. That is privatisation by stealth. You're introducing. So tell me, tell me why it isn't. Uh, because it's about provision. So you either you either fund it through taxation or you fund it through upfront charging. It's the same thing, isn't it? So the, the question is, how do you control the demand? And, and you have to do it by encouraging people who need the services to use them and discouraging those who are perhaps not so needy to think again or find alternatives. So we need to, for example, also rethink 111, which is a mess. Mm. It's a completely protocolised mess. OK. All right. Richard, thank you very much. I'm sure that's going to spark a lot of uh, debate. 03700 Maggie Ellis. Um, is that the answer? Uh, charging for GPs, is that what we need to do? Is that the way to keep this boat afloat? No, I think we have enough information now to show that what we want is to use open records for our GP uh, services. If you live in Estonia, Valencia, parts of the Netherlands, you do this. It's everyday practice. Yeah, now you, you sort of have some background in this. Tell me what it is. I coordinate a European group for technology and e-health 
at the London School of Economics. I'm also an occupational therapist in my other world. Okay. So I see what happens every day to real people. So I, I, the, only, the only thing, sort of whenever we have these conversations um, about e-technology being the solution is that I'm always minded, and people very quickly remind me, of the last attempts that have been made, significant attempts that have been made to bring the NHS online, if you like, billions of pounds spent, some would say squandered, on on having a, a computerised, coordinated system that just was then abandoned. Well, unfortunately, we didn't do it properly. But if you go to Estonia, everybody has it. So if an Estonian is ill and on holiday in Mallorca, they can show the doctor they're seeing... Yeah their medications, their records, what the reports are and everything. And there are people doing this wonderful work in the East End of London. We're working with some of them. They give people facilities to do this. It means that people can measure their own blood pressure, their own sugar level. Doctors can see it. So they can all know that it's perfectly normal. But if it's not normal, somebody in the health sector can visit them, can check out what's wrong and save them going to A&E. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're also saving money. Mm. And that's important because money can then be used more adequately. In a word, we didn't do it right before. You think we can do it right this time? We can do it right this time. You ask your GP for your records online and you demand that service because it saves you having to get repeat prescriptions. Okay. It saves you uh, organising an appointment and you can see what's wrong with you. Okay. You can help be better and healthier. Maggie, thank you very much. Marcus Cleaver, you may be our last caller on this and then we're going to move to matters Brexit. Uh, calling from Malvin. Hello. Hello. Hi, what did you want to say? Um, I noticed that none of your panellists mentioned anything to do with PFI, um, which is used more and more uh, to finance hospitals, uh, GP surgeries, etc. Um, this is uh, a commercial um, uh, initiative which uses borrowed money, which is more expensive than the money that the government could borrow. It's covered in commercial secrecy. It lacks flexibility. Uh, it uses very complicated contracts, which use very expensive lawyers and consultants to put together and to monitor, and it lacks the flexibility uh, in long-term contracts where you've got rapid changes in medical development. Mm. Uh, so no one mentioned this. Um, Jeremy Hunt and Kwasi Kalteng are... Um, proponents of denationalising the provision of healthcare in Britain. That's stated in a in a document that they were part part author of a few years ago. Um, so it's not just how much money goes into the health service; it's how it's spent. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Marcus, for your call. Oh three seven hundred one hundred four 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 is the number to call. Uh, we are going to talk about Brexit now. Um, a second referendum. So it was a little okey cokeyish, wasn't it? Um, he was, he was, he wanted one. Then he, he might not have wanted one. Then he definitely didn't want one. Talking about Nigel Farage, but do you want a second chance at having your say about Brexit? Um, Kevin Foster, calling us from Irby in Lancashire. Are you pro or anti a second referendum, Kevin? Well, very much anti. Why? <laughs> well, we had a vote. The, 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 it was we had a democratic vote, free and fair election. Uh, the, the people of this country voted to leave. Decision over. Can I introduce you to Kurt Lesser? Kurt, um, would you like to meet 
Um, lovely Kevin over here. You're calling from Copenhagen. That's right. Okay, wonderful. Mm. Uh, are, are you for or anti a second referendum? I'm, uh, I'm for a second referendum because I think the first one, which is supposed to have expressed the will of the people, was only at best half the people. It should have been a weighted majority, two thirds or three fourths. Mm to give a more stable and uh, um, solid majority for that very important issue. Okay. Well, can can I just ask both of you, because I've got you both up now. Um, Are we following tribal lines here that, Kevin, um, you voted to leave, and so you got the result that you wanted, so of course you don't want a second referendum. And, Mm. Kurt, you voted to remain, and so of course you'd quite like a second referendum because you'd like a second, second shot at it. Kevin, no, first actually, of all. I, 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 I didn't vote. I'm an outsider. I'm, okay. I'm living in Denmark. OK, all right, Kurt. But what about you then, Kevin, as somebody with skin in the game? Is it fair to say that those people who got the result that they wanted would definitely not want a second say? And uh, and it's it's as simple as that? Or could no, it be that back, we've heard back. a lot more detail now and people would quite like a final say on what we are going to be saddled with at the end of it? Well, let's go back to 1972. When we, when we had a vote... We voted. We voted in. Then there was none of this this aggro uh, 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 about second referendums. I mean, one of the biggest campaigners for leaving '72 was Tony Benn. He didn't come out the next day and say, "Well, this result is ridiculous. We should have another vote." Mm. The reason why the only reason why we're getting all this fuss about having a second referendum is because the vast majority of Parliament and the upper echelons of this country didn't want us to leave. See, another one here. I've got this from Dave, who's got in touch with us. He says, look, I am a full-on leaver. So a bit like you, Kevin. And I am now minded to have a second referendum because people are going to vote leave even more aggressively after Barnier and Cove insulted us for the last two years. We would be out in droves. The snide executive is tainted with talking down to us. So bring it, he's saying. That's that's a fair point. I think the way the EU has performed since the leave-out, um, has, has really got uh, people really annoyed. That I mean, that uh, all the, the leavers that I spoke to yeah. um, um, have, re- have really been upset at the way well, the EU have... have it's, they're, they're acting, it's like uh, uh, Barnier, he's like, he's like a two-year-old. The next thing he's going to do, he's, he's going to lie on the floor and scream and scream and say he's going to hold his breath until he turns blue. All right, well, but, stay, but then you should be for a second referendum, because if they... Well, stay no, with no, us, there Kevin. Was, there was, there was, yeah. We were told this yeah. was the vote. OK. So, this was the final right. vote. OK. And, 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 and leave one, and, and the, okay. the remainers are just... Got to, got to swallow it. Well, da- David Cocaine is a, is a Remain voter, I believe, who's calling us from uh, Lim. Hello, David. Hello. Yeah, just just live with it, is what Kevin is saying. Well, well the democracy involves opposition. Um, just because one votes a government into Parliament, it doesn't mean to say necessarily that the opposition, uh, that the other party then falls over and says, yes, whatever you say. Um, I do think we should have a referendum on the final deal, because the first one, it was effectively like saying, we're voting to leave a house, but we've no idea what kind of house we're going to go to afterwards. Um, in fact, the first referendum, or the referendum was purely advisory. That was written into the Act. Mm. And uh, 
there was a referendum for Scottish independence, I think in 1979, which was won on an absolute, on a, a, a simple majority, but it didn't reach the threshold, as your caller from Copenhagen was talking That's about. That's Kurt. He's still with us. Hi, Kurt. Haven't forgotten about you. Yeah, yeah, I completely yeah. agree with him. Yeah. Uh, any country normally that uses a referendum more than we do in terms of changing their constitution, which I think leaving the EU is a change effectively in our constitution. If we had a written constitution, the EU would be written into it. Um, that requires a majority of at least 60% or possibly 66 or even 70 or, as Kurt said, 75%. The will of the people was exercised by 37% of the electorate. The, the last referendum, the referendum was advisory. Well, OK, so that's... Ke- no, well, Kevin, it, it, you're saying it's only advisory because they lost. Well, it, but it was advisory. Yeah, but, but the, 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 the way democracy works in this country, the way, the, the way a parliamentary election works, mm. if, if you win by one vote, you're in. We can't say, oh, well... The, uh, there should have been 75% of the country vote for leave, then we could leave. Yeah. Although Matthew Rees has been in touch with the programme, and this just leads on from what you've just said, Kevin. He says, look, if second referendums are such an affront to sovereignty, then let's stop having general elections too, rather than let people change their minds. Yeah, well, if, if we have a second referendum, that, that's the end of democracy in this country. No, but do you, do you hear the point he's making is that with it, you can't do the parallel between the general election because in a general election you get to vote again. People change their minds. You might want the Tories in one time and not want them in the next time. You're saying this is just it. This is it. You've made your decision. Well, this, what, this is what we were told. This, this is, this is, mm. we, were given, we were given the choice. Of, of either in and out, a, a okay. straightforward question on the ballot paper. Yeah. Let, let's get Kurt Lesser in back from Denmark. This was going to be a thing. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, yeah. more people voted to leave, okay. so we're leaving. Leave and and, and in what, what is the word in Copenhagen at the moment, Kurt Lesser? I've no idea. Oh, OK. <laughs> the word in Copenhagen? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm just thinking... What, what a, it's what it's what sort a, of like asking about the will of the people, uh, which is a... Which is a what a referendum does. Yeah. yeah. OK, writing off both things. Uh, David Cockine, um, we've got a, a few seconds left of this. Um, realistically, are you sharpening your pencil thinking there is going to be a second shot at this or not? I, I think it's 50-50. Nigel Farage said twice uh, in three weeks before the last referendum, well, if it was 52% remain, 48% leave, then it wouldn't be settled. And that's precisely what it was, but the other way around. So it's rather ironic that it's mm. Nigel Farage that's talking about a second referendum well, now. He sort of um, is and then wasn't and then might be. Um, David, thank yeah, you very much. OK, um, uh, just the last one here. The people who abstained last time should not be ignored. These are people who couldn't decide then, but because of uh, because of lies and obfuscation, but they now may have a better idea where to place their crosses. They should be given the opportunity, says Marion Redfern. That's it for this week. Back again same time next week. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Any Answers. Don't forget, if you want to hear any questions or you'd like to invite the programme to your venue, then please go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions. I'm Anita Arnand. Thank you for listening.